Hello there. <laughs> so in case you uh, caught that and noticed that um, I wasn't here when the video started, it's because uh, that noise you heard of my door closing isn't because I forgot to close the door and had to run up as I watched the countdown. Um, it's, it's not that at all. It was uh, the wind blew the door shut. In fact, it was such a big wind in my office here that it blew me right out of the chair, but now I'm back, so <laughs> there you go. Ah, welcome, welcome. So we're here again in our X study. I uh, hope that uh, we have several that are able to join us today. And I also hope that we don't have technical problems. Last week uh, I did on uh, as we looked at the Jerusalem conference in Acts 15, and uh, sorry about that, that became a three-parter. So, um, you know, my sermons and these lessons especially that go up an hour long or so are uh, certainly long enough to be in three parts, but hopefully this one will go through without uh, any problems. Uh, it's great to be with you today. It's, uh, we continue to be mindful of our uh, communities and our nation and our world as we continue to cope and to uh, seek to live and minister during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic that is uh, continuing to uh, show its colors and be very difficult to deal with, uh, especially in certain areas. Texas is having a hard time right now, and uh, we want to everyone to uh, be safe, of course, but to also continue to live and to be um, conscious of others as we do that. Um, and so I hope and pray that those in your family are well and many of us now, as this goes on longer, uh, are aware of individuals or families that have been especially touched by uh, this uh, coronavirus. And so we want to uh, be mindful and prayerful of all. Uh, nice to see Cindy and Eric with us today. I know there are others that have said they will be with us. And again, hopefully uh, we won't have too many problems. If you're watching this uh, recorded and you had trouble with Acts 15, you can see that on my Facebook page a little bit uh, further down. Just scroll down, and it is in three parts. If you look at it on our website, westerwin.com, and you uh, scroll over uh, where it says social media and resources and find the live streaming uh, channel, and then click down a little bit further under the big blue box where it says video archive, you can, you can see the X15 lesson uh, in one lesson, thanks to my dear and good friend Terry Frick, who uh, was able to splice that together, and he makes me look so good, so much better than I actually uh, am. So thanks, brother, for all you do, and uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna get uh, get right to it as we think about uh, the lesson that we have uh, today. We're gonna start in Acts 15 uh, at the end because we uh, went through that Jerusalem conference. We talked about conflict and conflict management and the conflict model that Dr. Randy Lowry, uh, president at uh, Lipscomb University, uh, has shared years ago. I uh, studied uh, under uh, Charlie Seibert at Abilene Christian in the Doctor of Ministry program. And, and as a part of that, uh, he brought in some people such as Randy Lowry and Dr. Seibert himself. Uh, an expert in uh, um, mediation, uh, the late Dr. Charlie Seibert, one of the men who influenced uh, my life in a great, great way and in and, and practical ministry um, and as a minister uh, uh, myself, 
uh, probably had uh, as big an impact on me as as most anyone. So um, these are that's a, a great little chart. I shared it last week. You can look at it. It uh, con and I've shared it before. It contrasts issue versus relationship. And in a lot of our conflicts, uh, there are two things involved: issue and relationship. And how we deal with the conflict is basically determined by how important the issue is and how important the relationship is. And there are times when neither is important and you can avoid it. Um, there are times when the relationship is all important and so you want to accommodate. You want to acquiesce. You want to give in uh, for the sake of the other person. Um, and we certainly see examples of that uh, in Scripture. Uh, we'll talk about one of those here in just a few moments. Uh, there are times when the issue is all important and uh, the relationship you're willing to risk because of, of that. Uh, we talked a little bit about that at the Jerusalem Conference discussion last Thursday from Acts 15 and also Galatians 2. As Paul uh, and Barnabas go to Jerusalem for that conference and as Paul recounts, I think, that conference, it could be a different one in Galatians chapter 2, he uh, he says, I wasn't going to budge an inch on the gospel because the issue was the gospel in that situation. And there were some Jewish Christians, Judaizers, he calls them in Galatians, who were trying to uh, bring in the old law and circumcision and all of those things uh, uh, and, and require them just like they required belief and repentance and baptism. And Paul wouldn't have it. And so in Galatians 2, Titus is his a test case who is a very faithful Christian man and uncircumcised, uh, not from a Jewish background, obviously, and yet he was uh, a faithful Christian, and Paul said, well, I, I refused uh, to have him baptized because the gospel was at stake, and he would not budge. Uh, sometimes you can compromise and uh, where you give a little bit on the issue and you give a little bit on the relationship. There are biblical examples of that as well. We might even consider that uh, one of the ones that we talk about today is, uh, is that kind of a compromise. We might even be able to consider that what they did in Acts 15 was a bit of a compromise uh, because they did require, ask the Gentile Christians, converts, to uh, begin to follow some of the aspects of the law uh, that they wouldn't normally have to follow, uh, such as a question that comes up later on in Romans and, and uh, other places, eating meat offered to an idol. Uh, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians uh, 8 uh, and also in Romans that really an idol is nothing and, and it doesn't mean anything to me as I partake of it, so uh, I shouldn't be required not to do that. But in, uh, in Acts 15, they encourage the, uh, those who have uh, become Christians from a Gentile uh, background. Uh, that's one of the things they mentioned, to stay away from meat that's been polluted by idols. Uh, later on, Paul would say, no, I follow your conscience on that. Be considerate of your brothers and sisters and act in love, but follow your conscience. Uh, that's Romans uh, 13, 14, and 15. Um, and so in, in uh, Acts 15, they said you don't have to follow the whole law, but you can follow a few of these things because they're important to your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And, um, and so I guess you could say that that was a bit of a compromise. But then if the issue is all important and the relationship is all important, and you don't want to give any on either, then you come up with a collaborative solution on uh, Randy Lowry's chart. The issue is a 10 and the uh, relationship is a 10. You don't want to budge on either. 
I think we see a great example of that in John 8, uh, when the Jewish leaders to try to trap Jesus bring drag a woman caught in the very act of adultery, as scripture says, uh, and throw her before Jesus and say, okay, the law says to stone her, you say we should love and accept everybody. What is it? And, um, and that's when Jesus uh, uh, kind of goes down and writes in the sand and says, okay, whoever is without sin can throw the first rock. And then he goes back to doodling in the sand and everybody leaves, starting with the oldest one, until nobody is there but Jesus and this woman. And Jesus could have thrown that first rock, but he didn't. And so he interacts with the woman and ultimately sends her away and tells her, leave your life of sin. Go your way and sin no more. And so the issue of adultery and sexual morality is a 10. It's absolutely important. And Jesus was not budging on that. So he told her when she left, stop your life of sin. Uh, but the relationship with her was also significant. And that's why he refused to allow them to kill her. Uh, and he found a way that he could be faithful to the law and faithful to this woman and save her life and maintain a relationship with her. Um, and that was a very creative, very collaborative uh, solution. Um, and it could be that uh, one of the ones that we're about to read about is, is one of those two. It's either a compromise or a collaboration uh, here at the end of Acts 15. Um, so again, if you want some more info about that, you're, feel free to Facebook message me or you can email me or text me. Um, uh, look at the lesson from this past uh, Thursday. If you see it on my Facebook page, it's in three parts, so go ahead and try it out. I think I share the chart on the first two parts of that. Uh, but go ahead and uh, listen to that and or watch it on our website. Um, and if you have questions about it, let me know. It's very useful, very useful model. Uh, and I encourage you to consider that. Uh, so hello again to Cindy and Eric. Hello to Robert and Mary Lee, my dear friends from here as well. Uh, also Larry and Lynn Murphy, uh, wonderful family, um, wonderful, wonderful family. Uh, and they're joining us today as well and have been. And my dear friend, Linda Riddell uh, from back in Arlington days. Great to, uh, great to see you, my dear sister. Um, so here we are in Acts 15. We've gone through the Jerusalem conference. Uh, they've come up with a letter, James, the half-brother of the Lord, kind of led them up to a decision, and, um, and they agree, and they send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch of Syria uh, with this letter and with the decision, and they also send a couple of others with them that are from Jerusalem, one of whom is uh, Silas. Um, and so now we're going to get ready for the second mission journey, but before we do that, there's a, there's a conflict, a major conflict. And one of the things that amazes me about this conflict is how close Paul and Barnabas had been, and yet they have trouble. So let's read about it in Acts 15, beginning at verse 36, and then we'll look at the great uh, chapter that's ahead of it. Acts 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Remember, Paul and Barnabas had been on this first mission journey, as we call it, in Acts 13 and 14, sent off by this very church, the church in Antioch of Syria. And so now they have gone to Jerusalem. They have baptized a lot of Gentiles, uh, beginning with uh, Peter's baptism of Cornelius and his family in Acts 10. This church at Antioch of Syria got really serious about evangelism and mission, including to the Gentiles. 
And so they convert a lot there in their own area, but they also send Paul and Barnabas out uh, from where they are uh, to what we would call modern-day Turkey and see, uh, including, I think, the areas of, of Galatia. Um, and they go out and they baptize a lot of Gentiles and Jews as well. And then they come back. They have the conference in Acts 15, and now they've returned to Antioch. And after a while, Paul says, hey, let's go back and check up on everybody. That will be what we call Paul's second mission journey. But there was a problem. Verse 37 of Acts 15, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Remember, John Mark had left them. Uh, he had not stayed with them. Um, and, um, and, and we realized that for Paul, that was a big problem, big problem. And he didn't want to take him. Barnabas is related to, to Mark, and he wants to give him another chance, and he wants to take him with him. Um, and verse uh, 39 continues, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas, that one of those men who had come from Jerusalem, and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Uh, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Um, it's amazing the conflict that Paul and Barnabas have, having shared so much. They really were close. Uh, later on, we read about um, uh, Barnabas and uh, Paul and Peter being involved in a conflict. This happens in Galatians in chapter 2. And it affects Barnabas so much that he's uh, led astray. And uh, Paul, uh, as he says, approaches Peter about it and confronts him to his face. And that's what we should do when we're in a conflict. That's in Galatians 2. Uh, Paul takes it right straight to Peter. Jesus says that in Mark 18. Look, if you have problems with a brother or sister, go to that brother or sister. Talk to them about it. I used to have a friend, a dear friend in San Antonio who meant so much to Joyce and me a wonderful registered nurse by the name of Edna Mae Becker. And she helped us while we were down there ministering, and she worked a lot with some of our young people. And she was especially a, a great encouragement to me. And if you came to her and said you had a problem with somebody, uh, before she heard a word, she would hold up her hand. She would say, stop, and she would ask a question, have you prayed about it? And if you said no, then she would say, go home and pray about it. And so you did, and you come back. And you begin to talk about the problem, and she would say, wait, have you prayed about this? And you say, yes, I have. And you begin again, and then she says, wait, have you talked to that person? Well, that's the way everyone should do it. That's the way everyone should do that. Oh, what, what a blessing, and what a unified church we would have if that's what we did. Uh, Jesus' pattern was to go first to that person, then go back to them and still try to work it out, maybe with two or three others that could help. Sometimes that's necessary. Nothing wrong with that. It's a great thing. It says you're committed to trying to find a godly solution. And he says if that won't work, then you get the church involved and try to bring them around. And if they still are bent on, on, uh, on their life of sin, then you may have to distance yourself as a church from them. And that's a very extreme thing to do. The whole context in Matthew 18 is about reconciliation and forgiveness. And so Jesus only lists that as an ultimate last, last resort. Um, and so we go back to uh, Paul and Barnabas and this conflict 
uh, between them. And, uh, and, and it may very well be uh, something that uh, Peter did. Uh, and as he talks about it in Galatians 2, Peter was a guy who was willing to uh, associate with the Jewish and Gentile Christians until some of the believers came from Jerusalem. And it could be something related to these instances uh, that we've read about in the past few chapters. It could be something else. Uh, but when they, when some of the Jewish Christian brothers came from Jerusalem, perhaps some of the other apostles or James or someone else, uh, Peter distanced himself from the non-Jewish Christians and wouldn't treat them the way he had treated them before. And it had an effect. In fact, Barnabas even was led astray. What does that mean? Well, maybe it means he was wondering if this Christianity was really legit, if Peter would do such a thing, or perhaps maybe he joined Peter in that hypocrisy. Who knows? But Paul confronts Peter, his fellow apostle, uh, to his face, and he says, you're not doing right. Uh, you're, this is not right. Um, and so that's, uh, that's kind of related to this conflict between Paul and Barnabas. And again, that's just another thing that they shared. Remember in Acts 9, when Paul first became a Christian, it was Barnabas who took Paul by the hand after he went to Jerusalem and, and introduced him to the apostles and the leadership of the church uh, at great personal risk uh, for himself and for the others. But he told them the story of Paul's conversion and, and vouched for him and then uh, went and got him and brought him to Antioch of Syria when he saw what a great um, contemporary evangelistic church this was. He said, I know just the guy, and it was Saul of Tarsus. And then when uh, the Holy Spirit says, separate Paul and Barnabas for me for the work I have for them and sends them out on that first mission journey, uh, their, their relationship is only increased and cemented, and yet now Satan tries to drive a wedge between them, using Barnabas's uh, cousin Mark and his willingness to uh, leave their mission tri trip in the first uh, voyage in Acts 13 and 14 and to go, go back home to Jerusalem. And, um, and now Barnabas wants to take him on this next trip, and Paul says, no, he's not ready. We, we can't afford to do that. Barnabas says, yeah, he's ready. We, we can give him another chance. Uh, Barnabas being that great encourager, remember, uh, in, including encouraging Paul. And the, the vision was so, so serious, Luke records, that they parted company. They went their separate ways. But here's how God did that. Instead of just having one mission team, now we have two. Because Barnabas takes John Mark and goes one direction, and Paul takes Silas, uh, this man from Jerusalem who was a Christian leader, and goes another direction. And Paul and Silas become great mission partners, and they do a lot of work together uh, on this second journey and also on the next one, uh, on the third journey that we'll read about uh, in just a little bit, starting in the middle of Acts. 18. Um, thankfully, this isn't the end of the story for Paul and Barnabas, and not even the end of the story for Paul and John Mark. Uh, Paul recounts how valuable uh, Mark is uh, to him in Colossians 4 and 2 Timothy 4 and Philemon 24, mentioning how valuable it would be if, uh, if Mark could come and, and help him and how faithful he was to him. Uh, the Apostle Peter speaks of Mark in 1 Peter 5.13, the same way Paul would speak of Timothy and Titus, his son in the gospel. So God takes difficult situations and makes uh, wonderful blessings from them, such as the conflict in Acts 6, 
over the uh, uh, Hellenistic widows who were being neglected and the great solution that was there, the conflict between the Jews and the Gentile Christians that he comes up with a great solution in Acts 15, this great compromise. And then here at the end of Acts, um, I guess you could call it a compromise because Paul and Barnabas don't stay together, but at the same time, the issue and the relationship, even though the relationship is tense now, uh, still the issue has been saved, which is the spreading of the gospel. And now in an even greater way, uh, that now instead of one team, there are two teams. Um, and so again, God takes difficult situations and makes great things happen. And he can do the same for us today in our churches, in our families and homes, in our relationships with each other, even in our great country that is so divided right now, God can still uh, play a great part in restoring relationships and restoring uh, even the unity of a nation. I think we all need to be praying for that, uh, that God would act. And I think we all need to try to do our part because if God is going to do that, he's going to use us uh, to do it. And so we reach out and try to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers, peacemakers, and help restore relationships and help um, those uh, come through this. Uh, it's not an easy thing. Mediation is not an easy thing uh, to be faithful to that issue and that relationship, to see the things, as we talked about last Thursday, that are below the line, not just the presenting uh, positions on whatever question someone is squabbling over, but going below the line and trying to find out the values uh, and the interests that drive uh, that position and, and asking the question of why is this so important to you? Why do you feel so strongly about this? And, being, and if, when you do that, then you can, then you can come closer to finding a, a compromise or even a collaborative solution. I think that's what they did in, in Acts 15. They recognized the things that were important to the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians and they were able to come up uh, and with through James's leadership with a, a good resolution, and the church grew. That's what can happen even still um, today. Okay, so now we're going to go to Acts 16. This great beginning of uh, kind of the end of chapter 15 is, but this uh, great beginning of Paul's second mission journey. Now with a new partner. Uh, and as we're going to see, a, going to a new continent for the first time, they will go into Europe, um, and, uh, but with the same mission and the same message, uh, the message of salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, we're going to be introduced to a young man who will become Paul's son in the gospel, and his story is such an incredible story and has to do with our conflict graph uh, from just a few moments ago as well. So let's start reading in Acts 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. And so his mother was a Jew and his uh, father was a Greek. And, and his father uh, would not let his son be circumcised, which again was the sign of the covenant for the Jews. From the time of Abraham in 2000 B.C., uh, to the present day in the first century, and yet he wouldn't budge on that one. And so his mother was a Jew, but she became a believer. And Timothy himself became a believer as well, but still an uncircumcised uh, believer. Um, verse 2, the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. 
Paul wanted to take him along the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Um, and so, again, thinking about this conflict model, this issue versus relationship with Titus, the issue was all important. The issue was the gospel. And so Paul wouldn't budge. He would refuse to have Titus circumcised. But here, in a sense, the very same question when it comes to Timothy and this mission trip, Paul has him circumcised as an adult male, as a, a Christian uh, from a Jewish background through his mother. Uh, remember that wonderful passage in 2 Timothy 1 when Paul talks to his young son in the faith, uh, Timothy, about his background and where that faith came from. He says, I'm reminded of the faith that dwelt, first of all, in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice and now uh, exists in you also. Uh, Lois, Eunice, and Timothy. I had someone, I can't remember who it was, it may have been my old buddy, old pal Kevin Finley in Arlington, who talked about, how do you remember that? I never could remember that. And he says, well, here's the best way to do it. L-E-T, the word let. Lois first, then Eunice, Timothy's mother, and then Timothy, L-E-T. So if that helps you, then great. Um, you can answer a trivia question for, for uh, uh, and get it correct next time you're playing Bible trivia. Um, and so uh, Paul has Timothy circumcised. Why? Because he had to to be saved? No. See, that was the question in, in Acts 15. And that's why Paul and Barnabas said, no way, we're not budging on this. That was the question in Galatians 2 with Titus. Paul said, no way, we're not budging on that. That's not the question in Acts 16. The question is in Acts 16 is relationship and effectiveness in sharing the gospel of Christ. And that's when we follow Jesus' words and be willing to go the second mile so that we can have an inroads. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, I've become all things to all people so that by every possible means I might be able to save some of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, to the non-Jews as a non-Jew, um, to, the, to the slave a slave, to the free a free, whatever it takes to be able to have an opportunity uh, to share the message of Christ. Well, for Timothy to be able to interact with Jews, and as Paul had found on his first journey with Barnabas, they would be going in and out of synagogues, most everywhere they went. Um, Timothy would need to be circumcised. There would need to be no question uh, about his background and his heritage. And uh, again, it doesn't affect his uh, stance with God either way, other than will he be willing to act in love and consideration or not. So with Timothy, the issue is, is really not that important because the issue is not the gospel. The issue is just, well, Timothy, you're going to have to be circumcised. But the, uh, the uh, relationship is all important. Could he build a relationship with those uh, Jews where he would be going and be able to interact with them and be able to answer their initial questions so that they can get to the deeper discussion about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all should be willing uh, to take the second and third and fourth steps and go the second, third, and fourth miles to be able to develop a hearing. We are not dishonest. We don't try to manipulate. But what we do is try to help people understand that we care about them, that this matter of their soul salvation is the most important matter that we could ever discuss with them and be willing to try to help give that a positive hearing. That's what Paul does uh, with Timothy, and this is that accommodation part in Randy Lowry's chart at the lower right, if you remember that chart, uh, where the issue is a zero. The issue is 
Not as important as the relationship in this case. The relationship is a 10, because remember, the issue is not the gospel, uh, but the relationship is with those who need to hear that gospel. And so uh, Timothy is circumcised. We keep reading now in Acts 16, beginning at verse 4. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. That's that letter that James had them write in Acts 15. Uh, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. What a great, great passage. What a great beginning of this journey. Uh, and so uh, we're going to continue on now on this journey that's already begun. It started in Antioch of Syria in the northeastern part of uh, just off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and, uh, and in Syria, north of, of Palestine and Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Uh, and they're going to go through some of those areas that Paul and Barnabas went through initially, and that's where they pick up Timothy. Uh, and they continue on, and now they're going to reach a, a decision point. Uh, find one of your handy-dandy Bible maps that has the second mission journey or Paul's second mission journey or something like that, or, or Google it or go to the back of your Bible, uh, whatever works best for you, and be, able to, um, and be able to take a look at that. It'll be helpful for you. Uh, and looking at that and, and tracing through these steps that we're going to see Paul and Silas and Timothy take in Acts 16 uh, and 17 and part of Acts chapter uh, 18. And so we begin uh, to read this next section starting in Acts chapter 16 verse 6 when Paul hears the Macedonian call. You know that song, right? We have heard the Macedonian call today. Send the light, send the light, send the light, send the light. Okay, this is where that comes from. This reading in Acts chapter 16. And you don't have to text me and Facebook message me and put on the comments. Thank you, Bill, for that incredible moving song. I'll just say this. You're welcome. Okay, Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, this is all taking place in what we would call modern-day Turkey. And when it says the province of Asia, it's talking about that far western part of what we would call Turkey. And that's where churches such as Ephesus and Colossae and some others were located, the seven churches of Asia that we read about in Revelation 2 through 3. Uh, are there in that far western province in modern-day Turkey, but what in the Roman world of the first century was called the Roman province of Asia. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go. Wouldn't let them go there. Yet. Verse 7, When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. We'll read more about Troas later. During the night... Verse 9, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I have a couple of questions about this, and if you've heard me talk about this story before, then you've heard me ask this question, how in the world did Paul know that this guy was from Macedonia? You know, did he have a have a, a jersey on that said Macedonian ball, Bobcats or something. I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. Did it have a great big M on it? 
um, well, the Holy Spirit has a way of <laughs> letting us know what his message is. And Paul knew. Here was a man from Macedonia, and he was saying, come over here into Macedonia and help us. Now, if you have that handy-dandy Bible map out, you can see the place where we're talking about. We are now jumping from um, Asia to Europe for the first time uh, in recorded scripture. It may be that at the scattering of the Christians from um, Acts chapter in Acts chapter 8, from the time when Stephen was killed and Saul of Tarsus begins to to persecute and, and with great energy, and the church is scattered, everyone leaves except the apostles, but they go preaching the word. It could be that some of them took the gospel uh, into Europe, but we don't have uh, any a record of that from inspired scripture. But what we do have is these stories in Acts 16, because there were two uh, uh, Roman provinces in, um, in what we would call modern-day Greece. The northern part was Macedonia, the southern part was Achaia. In Achaia were the cities of Athens and Corinth that Paul will ultimately get to preach. An incredible sermon at Athens have such a great history and experience with that difficult church in Corinth. Um, but the northern part is also significant. The northern part is, the, uh, is Macedonia. And it is from there that this man is calling to Paul in a vision, in a dream, in a message from the Holy Spirit saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. Interestingly enough, uh, this all happens because their plans had been thwarted. What they planned to do, Paul and Barnabas, was to probably go back through some of those same areas, uh, Paul and Silas, that Paul and Barnabas had gone through on the first journey. And they want to go back, they want to turn south, go through some of those areas maybe they hadn't worked at before. Um, there in the Roman province of Asia in places like uh, Ephesus, Thyatira, and some others. Um, but the Spirit wouldn't let them. And this is a great example of God using some things in our lives that are uh, not quite um, as we want them to be uh, to make our lives better or to make us better servants to others. And that's what happens um, here. Interestingly enough, they, they go a different direction than they had planned um, to go. How do you respond when you pray and pray and pray about something and the answer comes back, no? That's what had happened here. Paul and Barnabas trying to go a certain direction, trying to go a certain direction, receiving uh, a no answer time and again, seeing doors close time and again, and then finally... They get the message, and Paul understands where all of this is coming from. And so we seek the Lord's will and direction. And I believe that when we pray and study his word and talk to trusted Christian uh, friends uh, and make a decision that he will guide us in that decision, I also believe that even if we choose wrong, that uh, he'll continue to work with us and help us and accomplish great things. Uh, through our, our decisions. But I do believe that discerning the will of God is one of the hardest things we can do. You know, we, we like the Old Testament story. We want to see the writing uh, on the wall. <laughs> but uh, uh, I just don't believe that God does that like he did before. Uh, and yet here, uh, he does that with the Apostle Paul. And he gives them this vision. He sees this man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And so 
when he shares that, that word with Silas and Timothy, they say, yeah, we, that's where we've got to go. We've got to go over there. And so that's what they do. They cross over by ship from, um, uh, from uh, modern-day Turkey in the northwestern part uh, and go across the Aegean Sea and finally end up in the, a Roman colony in the city by the name of uh, Philippi. This is all happening around A.D. or 50 to 52 C.E., 50 to 52, in the Common Era. And so again, you can consult your Bible map and you can see us on the northern part, uh, northwestern part of modern-day Turkey, jumping off into the Aegean Sea and uh, going from there uh, into Europe and specifically into modern-day uh, Greece. Okay. So let's keep reading. This, this uh, place we're going to read about in Philippi was a Roman colony. Not every town and city in the Roman Empire was a colony. This was a very important colony, obviously founded by Alexander the Great before the days of the Roman Empire, named for his father, Philip of Macedon. A very significant city, a very important uh, town in northern, what we would call Greece, in the province of Macedonia, and we're going to read about the first convert in Europe than in recorded scripture, and it is a wonderful, incredible Christian woman and servant by the name of Lydia. Acts 16, beginning in verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Tham Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, verse 13, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Don't you love that? They, they saw this place probably earlier in some, of their, in some of their activities. And they said, you know, this looks like a place where people are going to gather to pray. And so the next Sabbath, they said, we're going to come back here. And that's what they do. We sat down in the middle of verse 13. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, obviously a, a woman who is from the western part of Turkey, um, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, verse 15, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This woman, Lydia, is an incredible story. We still have uh, some of our daughters today named Lydia after this great woman of faith. Uh, she's from Thyatira. She is now living in Philippi, and uh, she has a career. In fact, a good career. She's a dealer in purple cloth. Purple was one of those royal colors, so I would imagine that she got a good price for her business, and she was successful. She also had her own home. And so here Paul and Silas and Timothy are just at the beginning of this mission journey. They've been there for a few days, stayed who knows where. They, they could be in, the, um, in the, uh, the, the city commons. Um, we, we really don't know. But they go to this place of prayer on the first Sabbath that they're there. And sure enough, some women come and are praying and are gathered there to worship. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy are able to be there as well, and they share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with them. And sure enough, Lydia hears this message. She has her whole household, her whole family baptized 
into Jesus Christ. Um, and the church in Europe is off and running. This woman could very well be the first European convert. Maybe not, but it's the first one we have recorded. Um, and then the question becomes, is, does she become a financial supporter of Paul? Well, she does right away. She invites them to her home and she says, look, you've given me the greatest gift I could ever have. Please let me provide a place for y'all to stay. And, and so she does. She opens her home to them and, uh, and she becomes someone who becomes a part of their ministry indirectly by helping provide some of the means that they need. Uh, this church at Philippi, according to Philippians 1, uh, as Paul writes uh, years later a letter to the church at Philippi that we call Philippians, in Philippians 1, he thanks God for them because of their partnership in the gospel. He says from the first day until now, uh, as he writes those words. And that term partnership in Philippians uh, chapter 1 is, um, is the term that we sometimes translate fellowship. It's that term koinonia. And it talks about that intense relationship and partnership and fellowship that this church at Philippi had. And he explains a little bit more about that in chapter 4 because he talks about how they sent him aid. Uh, they helped him. They helped his mission on likely on this journey. And he, and he relates to them how they were a part of that because of their financial uh, gifts. And they were partners in ministry just as much as Paul and Silas were partners. Uh, they had to have their needs met. They had to be able to survive. Uh, later on, we're going to read in Corinth about how Paul finds Aquila and Priscilla, and they have a common career uh, path, uh, being tent makers and dealing in leather. And, and so for a while, he works with them while he's there by himself. Uh, and then when Silas and Timothy rejoin him, uh, he goes back to preaching full time. So people helped Paul along the way in Thessalonica, as he will make the case. He says, I worked hard. We worked hard so that we wouldn't be a burden to you there. Sometimes when that's the appropriate way to go with Lydia and uh, with this church at Philippi, uh, they are able to give him some financial help. Interestingly enough, one of our favorite verses of scripture, Philippians 4.13, you can probably quote it. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That is in the middle of that context in Philippians 4 where Paul is talking about the help that they sent, the financial help that they sent to him. He said, hey, look, I've learned to be able to do without and manage uh, through the grace of God. I've also learned to be able to have a lot and manage through the grace of God. I can do all things through Christ, him who gives me strength. Um, and as he goes on, he says, but it was right of you to send me help financial help, and your gift is uh, going up before the Lord as a sweet aroma, and he will take care of you and provide for your every need. He tells them in Philippians 4, this is that church. We're seeing the beginning of that church right here with this incredible, wonderful, generous, godly woman by the name of Lydia. Well, she's not the only convert that we read about here. She and her family are baptized and we see that time and time again throughout the book of Acts. Uh, when a person comes to faith, they're baptized. That's how they do that. Just like Paul would wash away his sins by being baptized into Christ, according to Acts 22.16. And, uh, and according to how he uh, did it, as Luke records it in Acts chapter 9. Cornelius and his family baptized in Acts chapter 10. All those Samaritans baptized by 
uh, Philip in Acts chapter 8. Um, and in just a moment, another great story of a convert in Philippi. Uh, this man that Paul meets because of his being put in jail. Um, and so let's keep reading about this church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Uh, we'll continue on beginning in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, that same place, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Uh, a lot of that, the same type of thing happened to Jesus a lot, and he would call that spirit out of that person. Uh, and Paul is about to do the same thing. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of here. At that moment, the spirit left her. Great news for this woman, not so great news for her slave owners because they were using her to make money. They were abusing her. They were manipulating her. They were manipulating her gift. And, um, and it was simply for dollars and cents. And so when Paul frees her from this spirit, um, then they're not happy at all. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, because that's all they were concerned about, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd, verse 22, joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods after they had been severely flogged, just intense physical persecution. After they had been severely flogged, verse 23, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And he knew what that meant. He knew that his life would be at stake if they uh, uh, got away. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stock. So they're in the inner cell in the jail, not any of those close to the door, but in the back in the inner cell, and not just behind a locked door. They have uh, stocks on them as well. They're in chains in a, a prison cell. And so what are they doing? Well, what do you do in a situation like that? You've just been beaten. You've just been falsely accused. You're being punished because you helped a woman by people who were abusing her for money. And now the whole city has come against you and, and you find yourself beaten and flogged and now in jail and chains. Well, what do you do in that situation? What Paul and Silas do is that they sing. They sing praises to God. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. So there's a big earthquake, everyone is free to go, but they don't, they don't. And they've seen what has happened to Paul and Silas. They can't believe the, their faith. And now they have the chance to leave, but they don't. And the jailer, he thinks they're gonna run the first chance they can. And it would be a much better fate for him to take his own life 
than to see what his Roman superiors would do to him, having been given specific orders to guard these men carefully. And so he's about to kill himself. Verse 28, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And the man can't believe it. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He couldn't believe his ears and now he can't believe his eyes. He then brought them out and asked, verse 30, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Even though Paul and Silas were the ones behind uh, bars, they were the ones that were free. And this jailer was the one who was imprisoned. And so he comes to them and he falls down before them and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? We've seen that question before, such as in Acts chapter 2. And the answer there was repent and be baptized because the Jews, they already believed. They had seen all of this happen there in Jerusalem just less than two months uh, before that day of Pentecost occurred. They replied, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Why did they tell him that? Because he didn't believe. He didn't know what to believe. All he knew was these men are incredible. They could have left and yet they didn't. They must care a lot about me. They must have some kind of inner sense of peace and joy because after being beaten and uh, unjustly accused and imprisoned, they're in their cells singing praises to their God. What do I do to get that? And he had no idea. And so they start at the start. They say, you've got to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And the verses that follow are significant here. Just like we saw with the Ethiopian treasurer in Acts 8. He sees the water after listening to Philip preach about Jesus, beginning at Isaiah 53. Uh, he sees the water. He says, hey, why can't I be baptized? Because that was a part of what Philip had taught him, the response of faith. Verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, verse 32, and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the same hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his own house and set a meal before them. These men that he had just beaten or had seen beaten and had been watching over as he was uh, their jailer. Um, the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Just as with Cornelius and his family, just as with Lydia and her family, this man takes them home, he feeds them, he washes their wounds, he hears more about this gospel of Jesus Christ, and he and his family are baptized into Christ. All of those who believe, remember the first thing was to believe. And so some would say, well, Bill, doesn't this and those other examples, doesn't that show that the little children, maybe even babies were baptized? It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that at all. Because it, it implies that they are believers, and it implies that they have turned away from their life of sin. And those are the things that lead up to this very moment of them being baptized. And that's why uh, uh, Peter, uh, Paul starts where he starts, with believe. You've got to believe. If you don't believe, then you're not a candidate for baptism. You're not ready. And so they shared the gospel message with him. And uh, the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and how that was attested by witnesses, including Peter himself. 
And then they talk to him about the response of faith, starting with believing. You've got to believe this message. You've got to believe in this Jesus. Repenting, changing your life, turning away from this life that had imprisoned you, Mr. Philippian jailer, even though you were on the other side of those prison bars, you were the one in jail. And so you want to change your life uh, and go a different direction. You want to repent of your sins and confess that faith and be baptized into Christ, telling him the gospel, sharing with him the answer to his question, what must I do to be saved, included the message of baptism. How important was it? It was so important that they didn't let the sun come up before they did that. That very same hour of the night, uh, he has he is baptized and his family uh, at that, that very same time, that very same time. Uh, and it's so important because who knows what's going to happen the next day, but isn't that true of all of us? Who knows what's going to happen the next day? If you're one of those who is not sure about being baptized, but who thinks that you're ready, who thinks that this is the only way that you too can be saved, just as this man came to believe, then please talk to someone. Contact us. We'd be more than happy, whatever the hour of the night, um, to baptize you into Christ. Uh, this past Monday, uh, a week ago Monday, we had a, a wonderful woman who has been visiting with our church uh, who wanted to come and talk to a couple of us, one of our shepherds and I, about about the gospel of Christ and about what she had been hearing as she had been attending some services of our church and some others. And she was baptized that very day um, and now is a wonderful sister in Christ. This is what happened with this man. You know stories like that as well if you've been in the church for a while. Uh, what a great blessing uh, that was. What a great moment this was for this jailer uh, who now finally had become free. Well, the story doesn't stop there. They hear the message of God. They believe they're baptized. They clean the wounds of Paul and Silas. They feed them. And then guess what they do? They take them back to jail. And I'm sure that's what uh, Paul and Silas said. This is what we're going to do. No, we're not going to make a run for it. We're, you're going to take us back. Verse 35 of uh, Acts 16. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order. Release those men. <laughs> they had slept on it. They knew this wasn't right. The jailer, verse 36, told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. And that's what we would expect them to do, but that's not what happens. This is one of those few cases in the New Testament where they don't turn the other cheek. They don't, they don't say, okay, we were wronged, but it's all right. We'll forgive and just go on. That's not what they do. And again, that issue versus relationship thing may be at play here. The issue is important, and the relationship is important. The relationship being this new church in Philippi, and Paul and Silas and their continued work, the jailer, Lydia, their families, this new church that's just beginning, what will people think of them? I don't know if all of those things factored in, uh, but Paul takes a stand here that he hardly ever takes, and he demands vindication for the injustice. We hardly ever see people of God doing that in the New Testament, but that's what happens here. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. Not all the time. In fact, I would say hardly ever. Hardly ever. 
Most of the time, as we see Jesus teaching in the Gospels, as we see Jesus going to the cross, most of the time, as we read all these other stories of persecution and difficulty that early Christians went through, most of the time they say, we'll just be wronged, we'll continue to sing our praises to the God who will be with us, whatever happens, and, and we'll turn the rest of it over to him. This time, however, Paul says, not so fast. Verse 37, But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. Paul and Silas were both Roman citizens. Paul had been a citizen since birth. And that was a very important thing, and it made him a very important person in the empire. Um, and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. I'm surprised to read this, aren't you? I, this is, again, one of the few instances in Scripture where someone takes a stand and says, we've been wronged, we've been treated unjustly, we want you people to come here and make it right. Sometimes that's what's called for. Again, not all the time. I would think hardly ever, ever, based on the rest of the teaching of the New Testament. But when you have that opportunity... And when you can make that stand, for because the importance of this wrong being made right is so great. Why did they do this? I'm, I'm not sure, but it seems like maybe it's because they wanted this church at Philippi, this beginning of their European ministry. They didn't want it to be defeated right from the start because of what was being said about them. And so Paul says, no, let them themselves come and escort us out. We're Roman citizens. You have no right to punish us without a trial. We shouldn't have been beaten. We shouldn't have been flogged. We shouldn't have been put in jail. But they had been. And so Paul says, make it right. Verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, uh-oh, they were alarmed. Uh, yeah. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. Now they're just taking them out the front door, not the back, in broad daylight, in public, and asking them, not commanding them, but asking them, please, um, find somewhere else to preach. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to, of course, where? Lydia's house, probably where the church was already gathering, certainly where Paul and Silas and Timothy had been saying. Uh, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. What an eventful beginning of this second mission journey. My, my. First a, 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 a plan that was made and God said, nope, no, I don't think so. You're not going back the way you were in the first journey. I got another plan. And revealing that plan and them opening up uh, a whole new continent for the gospel Paul and Silas and now Timothy going with them uh, and uh, going across um, uh, the water to modern-day Greece to a new continent uh, with a new team, a new mission team, but with the same mission, with the same goal, with the same desire, and that is to preach the message of Christ. And sure enough, they're met by this wonderful, incredible, godly woman named Lydia. And she and her family are baptized, and she begins to support them immediately, opening up her home to them. And then as they continue to preach and minister, they find this woman, and they heal her of this spirit that is just 
um, taking over her life. And because of that, they're put in jail and beaten. But in jail, God is still present. Even though they, they're there for the wrong reasons, for unjust reasons, God is still present. And he has them there. And in that moment, because of their faith, they're able to reach this man, this jailer and his family with the gospel of Christ. And they too are baptized. And then the next day, the magistrates, as best they can, try to make it right. So that this city of Philippi, this Roman colony, this beginning of the European ministry on this second mission journey can start off in a little bit different tone. And now people will know, and that community will know, uh, that they were wronged, and that this is a good, good message, and they should hear it. Uh, and so we're going to go forward from here. Uh, but as we close, before we get into chapter 17, with such great stories of Thessalonica and those horrible Thessalonian Jews, and then Berea, where uh, they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying uh, was so. And then we'll go on uh, ultimately to Athens and to Corinth and such great stories there. Um, but remember that Macedonian call, because it's not just Paul and Silas that get it. You and I get it too. Um, and we might hear it to go far, far away uh, to places like Ukraine or to places like Guatemala or to places like uh, Ghana or elsewhere in Africa. But we also hear it right around the corner, right down the street. Um, we hear God calling us, Jesus calling us. And we're around people who, just like that man from Macedonia, are crying out. Come over here and help us. Be sure and answer that call. God bless you through the rest of this week. I'll see you on Thursday, and we'll get into Acts 17.